This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. Just cleaning my station tubes and sinuses. I'm Dana Duncan. Are you going to do that every time now? (laughs) Occasionally. (laughs) Okay. I mean, that's like two out of three weeks now. We also welcome our returning celebrity guest scorer and most frequent guest, my mother, Christine Duncan. Hello, everyone. Glad to be back. Where's the clap? Does she really need the clap and the cheering at this point? I mean, I thought I was famous. Consistency. (laughs) I thought I was famous. We need the applause sign for the audience. I mean, this is probably the more worthy sound. Thanks. Uh, Yes. You're welcome. So tonight for our 189th episode, we discuss the original buddy comedy, The Odd Couple from 1968, celebrating its 55th anniversary this year. Directed by Gene Sachs, written by Neil Simon, music by Neil Hefty, starring Jack Lemmon as Felix Unger, or F.U., Walter Matthau as Oscar Madison, Herb Edelman as Murray, John Fiedler as Vinny, David Shiner as Roy, Larry Haynes as Speed, Monica Evans as Cecily Pigeon, and Carol Shelley as Gwendolyn Pigeon. The Odd Couple was released on May 2nd, 1968. On a budget of roughly $1.2 million, it would gross over $44 million, finishing as the third highest grossing movie behind only, what, two movies? 68? We already discussed one on the show this year. <laughs> Boy. I'm not sure. So does this give you a hint? Bum, bum, bum. Okay, so 2001. And Funny Girl. Ah, yeah. By the way, her autobiography is being released this week. Cool. The film was almost universally praised by critics of the time and was nominated for two Academy Awards for Best Original Screenplay and Film Editing. The Odd Couple was recognized twice by the AFI, once in 2000 for AFI's 100 Years, 100 Laughs at number 17, and another time in 2005 for AFI's 100 Years, 100 Movie Quotes with Oscar Madison. I cannot stand little notes on my pillow. We are all out of cornflakes. F.U. It took me three hours to figure out F.U. was Felix Unger, was a nominated quote. The film spawned a television series spinoff in 1970, also entitled The Odd Couple, which ran until 1975. As the series ended, a cartoon version called The Oddball Couple ran on ABC, produced by Deputy Freeling. It featured a sloppy dog and a neat cat. I should also mention that it was remade again as a television series about five or six years ago, starring Matthew Perry and Tom Lennon, the recently deceased Matthew Perry. I enjoyed that show. The Odd Couple currently holds a 98% among critics on Rotten Tomatoes, an 86 score on Metacritic, and a 3.8 out of 5 on Letterboxd. So as we do each week, Dad, let's start with what your relationship is to this movie. Oh, this is easy. This was one of my dad's favorite films. He would 
literally sit and do his uh, wheezing while laughing bit that's like funny or that's a, the Duncan thing where you have to kind of laugh so hard you wheezing while you're doing it and then you have to try to repeat what it is. <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous. But anyway, anytime this thing was on, he would have it on and I would he'd tell me to sit down and I'd watch it. So I think this is probably the, you know, maybe the 15th, 18th time I've seen the film. So the namesake of the studio and really how we both kind of incidentally got into movies. You're going to laugh shame on this program. <laughs> but it's a it's my family. Half of my family has. Oh, this weird so it's all thing. fair game when it's family. Yes. Oh, OK. I'll keep that in mind for other things down the road here. As long as it's not about me, we're good. <laughs> it will incidentally be about you. I mean, when you're not on the show, we talk about you. When you're on the show, we talk about you. <laughs> yes. Tom especially talks about you when you're not on the show. Yes, it's especially me. You know, it goes back to what Dad said before. The thing that you usually talk the most about, you usually care the most about. Now, he applied it to nicknames. So the more nicknames something has, the more likely that it is to be very personable and important to that particular person that's why we have all these odd monikers for our genitalia but how did that get part of this conversation in this case let's just say that he is talking a lot about you because there is a lot of affection and care <laughs> okay think of how many uh names we have for maggie our dog True. i would just say don't listen to all of the episodes if you don't want that undermined <laughs> Uh, yes. Okay. Ma, what's your relationship to the movie? Well, I think it started actually with a TV show that came as a spinoff of the movie. And I didn't see the movie until after I'd watched the show. So since I was born in the late 60s, this was on when I was a young person and my dad enjoyed the show. I watched it and a lot of reruns of this show. And then later I realized that there was a movie... And um, I know that I watched it several times with my dad. He always watched the old TV on the Chicago WGN had a lot of old movies. And so I saw it with him and um, I've always enjoyed Jack Lemmon in anything he does. And Walter Matthau is just a hoot. And the two of them just have a really good, uh, the timing between them is really good. So they play off of one another. And I really enjoy the whole interaction between the two. So I've always loved this movie. My relationship to this, I'm going to start even back further than actually watching the movie the first time. This is the second of 10 collaborations between these two particular stars. After I believe the first time was Fortune Cookies in 1956. So it took them another 12 years to pair up again, but it would go on to foster 10 different collaborations and the first one that I remember them being in together is Grumpy Old Men, which obviously has infamy of a certain variety in uh, our family. I particularly apparently appreciated as a very small child the line, I'd rather kiss a dead moose's butt, which I'm sure <laughs> when I was like three or four would have been hilarious. 
Now in my old age, I'm too cynical to find that really that appealing. But still, I mean, I probably would have found that funny up until about the age of 12. Yeah. When your humor starts to maybe mature a little. I won't say a lot, but a little. And now I've just become a comedy snob. But obviously my next real exposure to this is through the play. Having starred in the play in high school as Felix Unger. And for those that know me, it's really not that much of an acting job for me. In fact, the funniest parts of the performances ended up being where I would just walk around actually cleaning stuff that wasn't in the script and just doing things. And then we'd add lib scenes where it was just us fighting over cleaning and messing things back up. But anyway, one of the few things that stands out to me is dad helping me practice lines and laughing every time we got to the FU line. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Needless to say, this has had some special importance to me. I remember watching the film for the first time for the play because we got together as a cast and obviously watched this version of it being the closest to what the play was actually about and using that as a basis by which to kind of draft some of our characters. Obviously, I was in high school, so I didn't appreciate certain things that I probably do now in for preparing a character comparatively to, you know, 20 years later. But still, uh, it's uh, something near and dear to my heart. So what is this movie about? Well, I think it talks a lot about friendship and that friendship can come in all different shapes and sizes and it doesn't matter your background or um, or who you are. Sometimes friends are made of the most opposite characteristics that you can even think of and yet they can be inseparable. So I just, I think this is about helping a friend and the relationships are messy. Well, one of the reasons that I think this could be the basis of what is the modern sitcom is that you're forcing unlike people into a situation where they have to interact. So whether we're talking about families who don't necessarily get along or roommates or people that work together, all of those are examples of putting friction between people in an everyday situation. And so to me, if you want to really break this down into its conceptual nature, it's wherein you're putting two people that are incompatible together and particularly in an enclosed space over a period of time. That's really where all of the humor comes from. And frankly, it's where a lot of our ideas of modern comedy or situational comedy have come from, in my opinion. Now, if you want to take it beyond that from the personal level, I've heard many people talk about, I have a best friend, but if I had to live with them, I would probably go insane. And having at one time lived with one of my best friends, it's probably accurate. Maybe that's why the pandemic was so hard for people. (laughs) Well, probably they had to be around each other 24-7. And only each other. And only each other, right. The Oracle of Omaha... Warren Buffett once said that you are the five people you spend the most time with. And in this particular case, Uh, isn't that a Stephen Covey thing? No, I I, I've read Covey. I haven't seen that anyway. I'm a tribute Buffett and that's what my story is. And I'm sticking with it. Okay. So what did Warren Buffet say? 
you you become the five people you spend the most time with. And in this particular case, this is about friendship and growth because each ends up tempering the other. Uh, Oscar becomes cleaner and more responsible and Felix becomes more assertive and independent. And so they played off each other. That's ultimately what the film is about. It's the conflict resulting in growth of the ultimate characters. Now, if you're going to talk about this is the first modern situation comedy, I would differ. Now, you have to go back. There were two different shows. Your show of shows and the Sid Caesar Hour. One, Carl Reiner was both a performer and writer for both. Neil Simon was on staff for both. This plays off of that. The father of the situation comedy that existed throughout the 60s, 70s, into the 80s, and even the 90s was the Dick Van Dyke show. It doesn't have the same level of conflict, but they all are rooted. Ultimately, who ended up directing the TV show and writing most of the episodes? Jerry Belson and Gary Marshall. Where did Gary Marshall and Jerry Belson get their start? They ended up becoming writers when or for the Dick Van Dyke show the last two seasons. And so I think Dick Van Dyke is the real start of this. This advanced the situation comedy and how television portrayed it into the next two or three decades. This is where we're going to differ significantly. The Dick Van Dyke Show is a classic example of the old sitcom universe, whether that's Andy Griffith or Green Acres or whatever. There's a separation between modern topics that you weren't necessarily allowed to talk about in some of those regards. They were much more clean cut. Your Leave It to Beavers, your My Three Sons. Those are all old sitcom types where it's a half an hour. Everything's resolved by the end of the half an hour. They're independent episodes where things will happen within the community, but they're contained and nothing is really ever that problematic. This is much more of a systemic situational comedy where you have the conflict inherent in the setup of the show. Whereas cheers would be based on the founding that Sam Malone is a former alcoholic or a recovering alcoholic, I guess is the, the correct term. And he's trying to run a bar, but then he's also got this romantic involvement, at least for the first three seasons with Diane. There's some inherent setups in some of that. And that's what I'm saying is there's a delineation. Obviously, this doesn't start the sitcom, but I'm saying it might start the modern sitcom. I don't have enough historical television knowledge to be able to make a definitive claim, but that's what I would be asking. I agree with Thomas. I think the shows that you're talking about, Dana, they're all family related. Everything is revolves around the family. And this is one of the first times where there's conflict or where there's you have pairings of different people in an outside relationship that makes it funny that there's this comedy about two screwballs who end up together and it's hysterical. You know, that's where you get the friends. That's where you get, um, yeah, Tom was talking about Cheers or how about All in the Family, but that's still a family, but there's outside 
influences there. So I, I'm with him. I think this starts something where you can look outside the family, where you look at different relationships among different types of people. Um, Mary Tyler Moore had, you know, this came out of all of that too, because she had all of these friends and they weren't her family. And I think um, before that, a lot of the sitcoms were family related. Well, on that same note, I would also mention that part of what my argument or my reasoning would be is we're talking about more difficult subject material in the at least premise or what became the pilot for the TV show is the basis for the play. We're talking about two divorced guys in the late 60s, early 70s. That's an issue that was a little bit yet taboo, but was becoming more normalized. And so by putting two guys that we probably haven't really written about or represented before, then we're talking about some bigger issues than, you know, what a father and son might do if Beaver gets into trouble at school. Not to say that those types of sitcoms didn't have their place yet. I mean, we have many examples over the years of that still coming up. I could talk about a bunch of the ones that were on like the Disney Channel and reruns in the 90s that I used to watch, like Brotherly Love and Smart Guy and Boy Meets World. But these are a little bit different as far as the degree to which they're willing to be a little bit more novel on the subject material. Because I think to a degree, this spawns something like MASH, which was unlike most other sitcoms of the time that you could have very, very difficult and heavy subject material like war and death and all of these other things sandwiched in between all of the comedy. Okay, what you're saying is is two facets. One is, is the characters developed an individual personality that transcended show to show. Felix was always fussy and cleaning. Oscar was slovenly and messy. Okay, though that transcended. But that's exactly the point that I'm point or I'm making with the Dick Van Dyke show. The characters were the same and transcended. It also was the first show that I can remember going back and thinking about it that did not directly involve the family and what was going on at home. It involved primarily the workplace. And we had a character, Alan Brady, played by Carl Reiner, who was a tyrant and who was semi-abusive towards his writers. And the writers had individual personalities, and it transcended that, okay? Now, you can make that point, and you go forward, and you look at where things became. Dick Van Dyke was revolutionary because it talked about problems that arise at home, but in conjunction with the workplace. It talked about single women and their difficulties in finding men later in their lives. It had issues that were not common in sitcoms. And I find it interesting that we've talked about shows that you think were revolutionary. MASH, who wrote or who was the primary writer and showrunner for MASH? Larry Gilbert. Where did Larry Gilbert start? Larry Gilbert started in the writer's room of Your Show of Shows with Carl Reiner. You talk about All in the Family and who started All in the Family. It is the 101-year-old Norman Lear who started working in this area in television. 
Okay, you mentioned the Mary Tyler Moore show. Where did she start? Dick Van Dyke. Okay, this entire stream of what took place in the modern sitcom started with the Dick Van Dyke show. And I will not concede that you were right on this. Dick Van Dyke started it. Now, did this advance it significantly? Probably. Because from this, Gary Marshall did Happy Days. He did Mork and Mindy. He did Laverne and Shirley. I think it's all tied together. Are we here to argue about Dick Van Dyke or talk about the odd couple? (laughs) But I think Dick Van Dyke started the whole process. The odd couple advanced it, but that's where I would say that the modern sitcom started. We're here to talk about the historical context of the film we're discussing and whether or not this is significant in its own right, because it sets up how we do the debate later on. But if we carry on too much further, people are going to lose the thread and start thinking this is actually a debate show instead of one where we constantly agree with each other. Ooh, heaven forbid. I know. I mean, you could tune into anything and people not arguing just doesn't seem that interesting, does it? True. So I guess let's take it to uh, another level with some more background on our movie. Dad, do you have our plot summary ready for us? Yes. The Odd Couple is a classic comedy directed by Gene Sachs and based on the play of the same name by Neil Simon. The movie revolves around two mismatched roommates, Felix Unger and Oscar Madison. Felix, played by Jack Lemmon, is a neurotic and overly tidy individual, while Oscar, played by Walter Matthau, is a slob and a laid-back sports writer. When Felix's marriage ends in divorce, he moves in with Oscar, leading to a clash of personalities and lifestyles. The film humorously explores the ups and downs of their cohabitation, with Felix's meticulous nature constantly clashing with Oscar's messy habits. Their conflicting personalities lead to a series of hilarious and chaotic situations, creating a classic odd couple dynamic. As they navigate their differences and learn to accept each other's quirks, the film offers a heartwarming message about friendship and tolerance. Thank you. Did you know? This was the second of ten different times Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau starred in a movie together. Did you know? Walter Matthau, who played Oscar in both the original Broadway play and the movie, asked the play's author, Neil Simon, if he could play Felix instead. This was because Matthau thought Oscar's personality was too similar to his own, and the role would be too easy, whereas playing the persnickety Felix would be a real acting challenge. Simon replied, Walter, go and be an actor in somebody else's play. Please be Oscar in mine. Matthau finally agreed to it. Who was Felix, by the way? Don't step on my next one here. Okay. Did you know? According to former Paramount production chief Robert Evans, in his memoir, The Kid Stays in the Picture, producer Howard Koch originally wanted to use the Broadway cast, Walter Matthau as Oscar, and Art Carney as Felix in the movie. Evans wanted Jack Lemmon for Felix. Evans also wanted Billy Wilder, who directed Matthau and Lemmon in The Fortune Cookie in 1966. So I got the year wrong a little earlier, folks. As writer-director. The cost for the Lemmon, 
Mathau Wilder package was $3 million plus 50% of the profits. Paramount owner Charlie Bluthorn balked at the demands and personally took over negotiations. Wilder eventually dropped out. Lemon was signed for $1 million against 10% of the gross, and Mathau got a straight salary of $300,000. Did you know? The baseball sequence was filmed at Shea Stadium before a regularly scheduled contest between the New York Mets and Pittsburgh Pirates in 1967. Originally, Roberto Clemente was supposed to hit into the triple play. However, the fleet-footed pirate kept beating the throw to first base. After several takes, Clemente slowed so much that he appeared to be walking. Bill Mazeroski, a more lead-footed athlete, was offered the part instead. <laughs> Did you know? Writer Neil Simon got the idea for the play after his friend and former writing colleague, Mel Brooks, moved in with another man after his divorce. Yep. I should also mention that Neil Simon based the character Felix on his older brother. So with that, we'll take our first break and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week for our 190th episode, we discuss another World War II prison camp movie with Stalag 17 from 1953, celebrating its 70th anniversary this year. Written and directed by Billy Wilder, written with Edwin Bloom, music by Franz Waxman, starring William Holden, Don Taylor, Otto Preminger, and Peter Graves. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Dad, we have best performance up. Who do you have down? I think the most the, uh, funny person in the film and the one who does the most work is Mathau. I just find his performance absolutely endearing and wonderful. And so I picked him as best performance because he's got the funniest lines to deliver and he always seemed to do it so. Well, then color this a true odd couple thing because I went with Jack Lemon because I thought the exact opposite. I thought uh, Mathau really didn't have to perform a whole lot. I thought Lemon, being the neurotic one, had a much broader range of a of portrayal, obviously had to do a little bit more showy acting in some of that, and only through his neuroticism does anything else actually matter as far as the witticisms or the jokes so in setting parts of that up i actually thought that uh, he was the better of the two performances because frankly i thought Mathau all he did there was kind of look like he was uh squatting on a john and uh, delivering one-liners <laughs> but ma settle the score i picked walter Mathau. And I think oh. um, I think it's because he did have to do a little bit of reaching. He's like such a, a gruff character. And yet when Lemon was down and out, he had to appear soft, which I think looked almost uncomfortable. I think that he he showed sides of himself that you don't usually see with him because he's always telling a joke and he had to be serious in part of this to pull his friend out of his depression. But as the part of a slob, I can understand why his wife divorced him after listening to some of his comments and what he, what he said. So he just played it to a T and I really think that he had the better performance. Best secondary. Who did you have? I had Jack Lemon. He's perfect for the part. The casting in this show was terrific. 
they they couldn't have picked two better people to play these characters. I I had Lemon as my secondary performance. He had to play the neurotic, and he had to play the situation of being vulnerable a lot of times, where it would have been easy to be too vulnerable, but um, not vulnerable enough. So I think he kind of played it straight down the middle a lot. And you can see his difficulty or his uncomfortableness um, at several times. For example, the scene with the four of them and the Mathau, he and the Pigeon sisters, and, you know, all of a sudden they're talking about, you know, they're laughing or whatever. He goes, well, uh, it's supposed to rain tomorrow or whatever the line Friday. was on Friday. Yeah. I mean, it's just, he's so uncomfortable. He doesn't know what to say. I guess I must uh, relate to his character too often. Let's just put it this way. Your mother and I both looked at each other and said, spot on when you said you were playing Felix. True story. Like I said, I didn't have to act much. <laughs> no, in fact, there were lots of times where um, we would be sitting at the dining room table. You'd go into the kitchen and uh, like to get milk or something. And I would go and run over and put the pillows or the uh, doily on the armrest askew. You'd come back and you'd be talking. And all of a sudden you'd look over and you'd go, Daphne, our dog, quit messing with everything. And then you'd go over and straighten it back up. And then you'd have to run off to the bathroom. And the minute you did, I'd run over and re it. You good now? You got that out of your system? Oh, yeah. It's a great story. Hopefully you don't put this on the cutting room floor. Or how about when we used to ride in the in the van and he couldn't stand it if the volume was at 11. It had to either be at 10 or at 12. <laughs> Same way yes. at home with the with our surround sound. I'd always have it at 19. He'd go, you can't have it at 19. It had to be either 20 or 18 because that's an even number. Or when we're in the van, well, no, no. And we have the yeah, uh, there GPS. There has to be an even number or divisible by five. Yes, we'd have the <laughs> GPS, and you'd go, "Could you straighten the GPS? Why? <laughs> turn it it's, crooked. it's it's crooked." I said, "Okay," and then I'd make it really crooked, and then you'd just be going. <laughs> Let me just say that I only turn the volume to. 18, 20, 22, 25, 28, and 30 in my car yet. <sighs> uh, yes. Maybe you need to see somebody about that. <laughs> sure. <laughs> who's who's going to want to bother to fix that? <laughs> hmm. Otherwise, I had Neil Simon. The strength of the film, if anything, is in its writing and he creates a fairly lasting concept and two fairly lasting characters, given that we just had a remake adaptation of the same thing. The play has been done over and over and over again. It still has significance, these two names and the name of the play. So to create something that somewhat legendary over 50 years ago that furthers the plot of comedies everywhere, I think is impressive. So... I debated whether to give him my best performance, but I went with secondary just because I, of course, love Jack Lemmon. 
And so then I also gave Jack Lemmon my most charismatic for obvious reasons. I like your comments about Neil Simon, and I guess I kind of messed that up. But for my most charismatic, I went with Neil Hefty, the guy who created the the theme music, because you that's one of the theme musics. OK, if you were to name the songs or the music associated with something for the general public, you could play that song. OK, the Bond theme, the MASH theme, Cheers. There's certain themes that you play it and a large majority of Americans would immediately go, oh, that's that's one of these. It, it created one of the most iconic pieces of music where anybody who hears it immediately knows where it's from. By the way, I have down here the actual lyrics that go with the music. I was not aware there were lyrics. Yes, it was written by Sammy Cohn. No matter where they go, they are known as the couple. They're never seen alone, so they're known as the couple. I've also indicated they are never quite separated. They are peas in a pod. Don't think that it's odd. Their habits, I confess, none can guess with the couple. If one says no, it is yes, more or less, the couple. But they're laugh-provoking, yet they really don't know they're joking. Don't find when love is blind, it's kind of odd. I'm not sure that quite fits. I, I think they made a good strategic choice in going without lyrics. That's the that's the lyrics. Well, I know. I just happened to look it up because they said there were lyrics. So I found the lyrics. Those are the lyrics. Well, so I could say Jack Lemon was most charismatic because just the scene with him coming out with the ladle waving in the air and you know, how he does his whole nose thing, you know, he has a lot of charisma. But I also like the pigeon sister, the one with the red hair, Gwendolyn. I just, she's so annoying. I, I can't imagine she's <laughs> laughing all the time and she's got the worst laugh. And so I just thought she was fun. She kind of made the whole duo of the sisters and um, really played off of Walter Matthau's character well in that scene with the four of them sitting in the living room. So for something different, I picked her. So you picked somebody that was annoying to you as the most charismatic? Well, because, yes, I did. Because... Did, do you understand what the word charismatic is? Yes, I do. Okay, so... <laughs> Moving on. Best scene. <laughs> I only have five down because, I mean, this really is structured like the play in many ways. They inserted a few other scenes and some different things to kind of liven it up for a movie version or a movie adaptation so it didn't feel so boxed in with just the the apartment itself. But I had the poker game at the beginning because, honestly, the first 10 minutes is still kind of weird to me. I don't even know why we really needed that section of it per se. It doubled down on a part that could have been fine off screen, if you ask me. Then I have the double date, so we're skipping ahead quite a bit. I have Felix and Oscar actually having it out, looking for Felix, so them riding around the cop car and such, and then the final moments. I'm sure you're going to tell me I missed some. When the Pigeon Sisters come over... That's the double date. Okay. Well, yes. And him coming out with the burnt meatloaf. 
So did you have something that I didn't nominate? The restaurant scene. Which restaurant scene? The one where they're sitting in the restaurant and he clears his nose and then his throat. <laughs> okay. I'll just call that sinusitis. <laughs> All right. All right, fine. I'm having a hard time figuring out which one I think is the best scene, though. Like, favorite scene of mine, I, I probably go with the poker game. I like how much setup is in that especially if you forget the first 10 minutes, because I know the difference in the beats between the play and the movie, having done the play and kind of roughly memorized certain beats from it. The poker game to me was always a good setup, but it also was the act that we had to practice the most given the amount of people that were in it. And the comedic timing was never right with people who were sophomores, juniors, and seniors from Port Edwards High School and didn't really have to try out. They just had to basically volunteer because we needed enough people to fill out the cast. So there is some personal attachment to that particular scene, but I'm not sure which one is the best scene in the movie itself. So thoughts? Well, like I said, my thoughts are the whole pigeon sister scene where they're all sitting over there and then it gets all really uncomfortable. And then he goes to serve dinner and the meatloaf comes out black and steaming. And, you know, and even before that, before they arrive and that he's talking about how they're late and he's got the ladle waving in his in the air and as a cook, I could feel his pain. If somebody is late and you're expecting them earlier and you're trying to put everything together so that the timing is all right, and I could just feel the frustration. Um, <laughs> so, and, Mom, has this happened often to you? Not often, no, but I I just know that, like I said, as a cook, you got to time everything just right. And if somebody comes, and especially with meatloaf, because it can dry out really quickly, it's a problem. Unless it's my mother's. Okay, unless it's your mother's. But meatloaf, the way I make it, it has to be done just so. You say no, but I know for a fact that uh, you complained on the phone to me last week that somebody was late for dinner. Well, we just started eating. I wasn't going to let the food go bad, so. Mmm. But did he call? No. So, Dad, what did you have as the best scene? I have the poker scene. Um, because to me, that kind of summarizes the whole relationship of everybody in the film and kind of symbolizes the relationship between Oscar and Felix. They're friends, they're involved with each other, they're playing this game, but there's a certain level of superficial behavior or relationship that once that initial bond or that cohesion around the game is disrupted they start realizing how much each other bothers or annoys the other just hung on a second which poker game because there were multiple poker games in this the movie initial now where they're wondering where felix is okay yes i usually treat the original poker game being in the first act because in the play that whole scene that plays out from basically when they realize Felix is missing up through the point where he agrees to stay is the first act of the play. To me, that's always the poker game scene because then the second act is them cohabitating and then inviting the ladies over 
the double date is the third act. And then the fourth act is the final, like, where did he go? I'm throwing you out. You know, we have it out type of situation. If I remember correctly, I mean, it's been almost 20 years. So I had my favorite scene as the poker game. Favorite scenes for either of you? I have where he's clearing his nose in the restaurant because the sound is so awful and I could only, it made me laugh so much because I could only imagine being with somebody like that. It's the only way in which I could say my father's ever like Felix Unger. Yeah, yes. <laughs> and I thought of that too. <laughs> You're much more Oscar. <laughs> but yeah, he, yeah, we won't go into dad's personal habits. <laughs> On this episode. <laughs> go ahead, dad. Felix and Oscar have it out. The scene to me with him throwing the spaghetti against the wall and him like. It's linguine. Yeah, okay. And uh, him, I'm not going to clean that up. Well, you know better. And you're just sitting there, you know, their personalities become such that it's so obvious that um, this is where the dichotomy between their personalities and their nature hits loggerheads and they can't, they can't step back from this situation. It has to happen the way it did. So due to my relationship with the movie, I'm going to do something I've never done before in Most Indelible. It will not be something that is indelible to almost anyone else other than me. But I'm going to nominate two letters, F and U. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> Ultimately, the most indelible moment is that exact point which I think is the funniest portion of the film. I, every time I hear that, I know it's coming. I still find it hilarious. And I think the most memorable is the spaghetti throwing against the wall and then the fight where he says, this marriage is over. I'm seeking an annulment. <laughs> you just know that everything is over at that point and it's the whole turning point of the film. All right, so that'll bring us to our second break. We will be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, and before we get to the Stanley rubric in a minute, if you're ever curious about our Master Greatest Movies of All Time list that has every greater movie we've ever discussed on the show, there's a link in the episode description of every episode of this show, or you can go to ronnieduncanstudios.com backslash podcast and find it as the top entry on the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast show page. That has the grades we've done so far for all 175 movies we've graded, and we continue to add more each week. Make sure to check that out as we go and follow along. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes. Evan Ellingson, 35 American actor, was on CSI Miami, 24, and My Sister's Keeper. And so we remember him here fondly with a moment of silence in his honor. Thank you. Let's make the awkward transition to best funniest lines. Oscar Madison. I can't take it anymore, Felix. I'm cracking up. Everything you do irritates me. And when you're not here, the things I know you're going to do when you're coming in irritate me. 
You leave me little notes on my pillow. I told you 158 times. I can't stand little notes on my pillow. We're all out of cornflakes. F you. Took me three hours to figure out F you was Felix Unger. How's my math out? Uh, and you were critical of mine earlier? I was? Yes, you were. Oh. See, I, I move on so quickly. Yeah. But, you know, when uh, it's family, all bets are off. Yeah. Apparently. Yeah. You made that rule earlier. He's been gone for 16 years. Like he's going to know. Oh, he'll know. Yeah, sure. He'll know. Murray. A whole bottle of pills. My God, get an ambulance. Oscar. Wait a minute, will ya? We don't even know what kind. Murray. What difference does it make? He took a whole bottle. Oscar. Well, maybe there were vitamins. He could be the healthiest one in the room. I have one here. Oscar Madison. Look at this. You're the only man in the world with clenched hair. Murray. Hey, did you know Felix was once locked in a john overnight? He wrote out his entire will on a half a roll of toilet paper. What a nut. Oscar. I know him. He's too nervous to kill himself. Where's a seatbelt in the drive-in movie? Oscar. Why doesn't he hear me? I know I'm talking. I recognize my voice. Felix, I'm a neurotic nut, but you're crazy. Oscar, I know him. He'll kill himself just to spite me. Then his ghost will come back, following me around the apartment, haunting and cleaning, haunting and cleaning, haunting and cleaning. Felix, I think I'm crazy. Oscar, if it makes you feel any better, I think so too. <laughs> Felix, I was just repeating what I thought you said. Oscar, well, don't repeat what you thought I said. Repeat what I said. My God, that's irritating. I'm glad you took that one. I, I wish we could just repeat that on a loop for you, like have it queued up. F you. Felix Unger. <laughs> I think she knows what she's doing. At this point, she has the biggest potty mouth of the three of us. Oh. <laughs> yeah. She swears like a sailor. At least now she's getting a flavor for what it's like when she's not here. Oscar. Blanche used to say to me, what time do you want to have dinner? I'd say, don't know. I'm not hungry. Then at three o'clock in the morning, I'd wake her up and say, no. I've been one of the highest paid sports writers in the East for the past 14 years. We saved eight and one half dollars in pennies. I'm never home. I gamble, burn cigar holes in the furniture, drink like a fish, lie to every chance I get. Then on our 10th anniversary, I took her to the New York Rangers Detroit Red Wings hockey game where she got hit by a puck. I still can't figure out why she left me. That's how impossible I am. Oscar, you can't spend the rest of your life crying. It annoys people in the movies. <laughs> Felix, you don't understand. I'm nothing without my wife and kids. I'm nothing. Oscar, you're not nothing. You're something. You're a person. You're flesh and blood, bones, hair, nails, and ears. You're not a fish. You're not a buffalo. You're you. You walk and talk and cry and complain and eat little green pills and send suicide telegrams. No one else does that, Felix. No one. I'm telling you, you're the only one of its kind in the world. You guys have any left? Oscar. Oscar, don't point that finger at me unless you intend to use it. <laughs> bang, bang. <laughs> uh, Oscar, where are you going? 
Felix, to the John. Matt Oscar, alone? Felix, I always go alone. Why? Oscar, no reason. You're going to be in there long? Felix, as long as it takes. Felix, in other words, you're throwing me out? Oscar, not in other words. Those are the perfect ones. I'm out. I am too. Sounds good by me. All right, then let's move to the Stanley rubric. Legacy is up first. Who would like to lead off? I can go. I have a nine for Legacy. I think that this, I mean, humor is timeless and it's revered. And the timing between these two characters proves just a beautiful piece of music. And um, I think that it's, that you can watch this film, that these friendships that are formed between these two guys, people can relate to those and get into the whole relationship between them and see themselves in this film. And I just think, you know, they, they formed this TV show. This is just carried on in other shows, this whole two odd people being thrown together, like we talked about before. And I just think that the nine is, it could probably be a 10. I don't know, but, but is a good representation of, of how long you could watch this, how, this is just a classic. All right. Would you like to go, Dad, or you want me? Sure, I'll go. Industry, 4.5. Simply because of the fact that not only did they do a remake 20-some years later, 30 years later. Try 40 plus. Yeah, with Matthew Perry and Tom Leonard, which I thought was a great show. Sorry, it got canceled. But the fact that they also did a version that was african-american with ron glass and uh, lamont weaver i mean the industry believes this and the characters are eternal for the public i would bet that you could go any place in the united states and large portions of the world play the music or say the either name felix unger or oscar madison and you're going to know what the film or the play or however you want to put it is. The play or the film itself brought the play, which was a huge hit in New York, brought it to the masses in the United States and set up this as a long-term part of American culture. So I went with a five for the public, so a 9.5 overall. At least that's where I calculate the math. So I'm going to be the lowest of the three of us by a good margin because I would challenge your insinuation that this is as recognizable as you think it is. Anybody under the age of 35 is going to be hard-pressed to know what this is. It's just a fact. This has not been in and among the culture, even though I would say it still has lasting impact with the industry for concepts of how comedy and situational comedy have been doled out. This is not by itself something that would be recognizable. The music is not nearly as recognizable as you think it is. It's not on the level of a James Bond theme or the Pink Panther theme, or I would say it's maybe on the level of Peter Gunn, but those are like certain themes from the 60s that people of a certain age are not going to get. Yes, people of your contemporary age, of course, that grew up with the show and the rest of it, but this is not a concept that has been refreshed that often enough 
for people to remember what this is. And I doubt there are a ton of people that have actually seen the movie. So I give it kind of like a half credit because there are a lot of people over a certain age that will know this, but there are also a people under that age that are not going to know this. So I only had a three for the public. I have a 4.5 for the industry, given how often this has been refreshed and repackaged as a concept, if not just outright the original concept itself of the odd couple. And the fact that that name still does actually have some meaning, not just in the industry, but at large itself. So I have a 7.5. So that's an 8.67 average between the three of us. Impact and significance. It was a top five movie of its day, right about the point where we started to get a separation in the amount of movies that were being made. In this particular year on thenumbers.com, we're getting roughly 28 movies that had at least some moderate box office that year that registered for these. The Odd Couple placed above other fairly novel contemporary movies of the time, including Oliver, the best picture winner of that year, Planet of the Apes, Rosemary's Baby, and Yours, Mine, and Ours. So just a few to uh, think about. From an industry side of it, you often mentioned the awards attention or lack thereof. I feel the fact that a comedy got at least a couple of Oscar nominations, particularly for writing, is actually significant in itself given how much the Oscars often ignores certain categories unless they create specific categories for those. Like the Oscars probably should have a category for like best comedy every year, just so we know that there's still comedy being made. I'm not sure what they would actually nominate and what might actually win because the critic opinion versus the average Joe opinion is going to be vastly different, but at least then we're incorporating all types of film into this stuff. Either way, I had, because it's a fairly high-grossing movie, it got some decent attention from the critics. It was almost universally praised at the time. I have a 4.5 and a 4.5 for a 9. So I had a 9 as well, just for its impact or the first of its kind for an odd pairing of people. This type of movie is still popular today for that same reason. We like to see how people who are different can fit together, um, whether it's to women, to men, to it doesn't make any difference just so that there is some sort of a conflict and how are they going to all work it out. It also explores human relationships. It had a social impact. They're talking about topics that aren't normally talked about at this particular time, whether it's problems in a marriage. Look at the other films or dad was talking about the Dick Van Dyke. They didn't talk about problems in the marriage really. They were superficial. You know, they had this strong bond. But here there are real problems in the marriage that led to divorce. People weren't talking about that. Or problems between friends. And how things appear from the outside may not be what they really are. So like I said, the social impact on here I think was pretty significant as well. A couple of things come to mind as you were kind of mentioning that. Maybe I should have mentioned in Legacy. But if we're talking about just like odd pairings, being together and being thrust into a situation where they have to constantly interact. I'm thinking of a lot of action movies where the two leads are just vastly different, whether that be 48 hours with Nick Nolte and Eddie Murphy or a movie we discussed about this time last year in Harry Met Sally, two vastly different people in a romantic comedy. 
So you could say that they borrowed and reconceptualized some of this, but then I wonder, are we missing like some Shakespearean play that I guess I'm not thinking of that somehow did this first? The Merry Wives of Windsor? <laughs> well, I was maybe thinking like Midsummer Night's Dream between oh, Puck and that. the other. <laughs> that is my least favorite Shakespeare. The other fairy. <laughs> Dad? Industry and what were the four? Because it got nominations. The critics liked it, although some of them didn't care for it as much. But I think ultimately, I mean, we had Barefoot in the Park, which was Jack Lemon, but it was a Neil Simon play. But I think it helped propel Neil Simon into a whole realm of things over the next several years as a playwright. I think it was Goodbye Girl was right in this time frame. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of the film that he did that was autobiographical with Matthew Broderick. Uh, it's drawing a blank, but it doesn't matter. Anyway, so I gave it a four for the industry. For the public, I mean, for a comedy to finish third, I mean, this this was a big deal. So I went with a perfect five for that for a nine overall. So I think we all three came up with nine. That is correct. So that would mean, what, nine overall? <laughs> I'm glad you can do the math. Mm. It's not always up to me. Good. <laughs> and we none of us mentioned that the TV show appeared within the first five years after this movie came out. Correct. It started in 1970, and this film came out in 68, so it didn't take very long. It was a popular thing, and they wanted to keep it going. Normally, we would incorporate that somewhere into impact and significance. I don't think any of us technically did, but either way, it's a nine. Well, and, uh, you know, and the, quite frankly, I know that I, I read an interview that Jack Klugman did, who did the TV show playing Oscar, said that he always felt that if it would have been picked up by CBS or NBC as opposed to ABC, which was kind of the poor sister of the three networks, it would have been a hugely popular show that would have lasted much longer than it did. Yeah, like I said, I remember watching it as a kid. Novelty. Dad, go ahead. Well, for novelty, I mean, we're talking about two divorced men living together, talking about a male-dominated thing uh, with the poker table and being kind of on the make for other divorced women. I can't think of another film that <laughs> addressed those issues, which was a late 60s or mid-60s situation. It had kind of like outlined the modern life of changing families, careers, lives, wives, etc. And I don't think there's any film that did it before. So I gave it some level of novelty for that. But it ultimately is a buddy film. Whether it's being on the road or whatever you want, it's still a buddy film. So I gave it a few points down for that lacking in creativity, but everything else was high. So I went with an 8.5 overall. And I had a 9 just for all the same reasons that I did for the impact and significance. I think that it was new, it was fresh, it was extremely funny, and you know, the jokes have lasted. I mean, we were watching it the other night and we were all la still laughing. They're still funny. So um, the humor didn't lose anything. So I also had a nine. 
so yes, it's an adaptation. I don't usually hold that against it. Uh, I probably won't hear. It does raise the concept of divorce and two divorcees living together. You did mention that one of the sisters is a widow. So that's also something that we're talking about. The only issue I would see in having it nearly to the level that you guys are, it would be if this came out maybe a couple of years sooner, but given the context with where it came out, a lot of its contemporary movies, we're talking about stuff that was even more novel of the time. This is the same year as The Graduate. This is two years after Guess Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. This is right before Easy Rider and Midnight Cowboy. There were a lot more daring films that were part of the new Hollywood. And this is somewhat of a transition film into pieces of that, but I just can't quite get to that point. The one thing I will say, and I may add back in, because I originally had a seven, but you made a good point that the jokes were a bit novel for the time. I think there's some credit to that. So I'll raise it back up to about an eight, which makes the math easy. When you have an eight, an 8.5, and a nine, dad, what is the average? Uh, is it 8.5? He can do math too. <laughs> I avoided math by going into law. You know, dad, five out of four people can't do fractions. That's true. Classicness. I know you're going to both rip me for this, but this really isn't that funny anymore. It's what? It's terribly droll. I barely chuckled maybe twice during the entirety of the thing. No it way. It reminded me of all the, the line reading and the line memorization for the play and people laughing at stuff like dad laughing at the FU. And I thought that was so tame. And all the stuff that tickled everybody else in the audience, I'm like, they found that funny? Really? I don't know. It, it, and this rewatch just kind of confirmed that for me. The only other thing I'll say is, is, given the rise in gambling that we've had, it being illegal to have a private poker game in 2023 really hasn't aged well. <laughs> Obviously, my biggest knock on this is that I just don't think it's that funny. So I had a five. Wow. Okay. No, I have an 8.5 because the jokes were funny. All four of us were in the living room laughing at the film. It was hysterical. And and what was the collective average age in that room oh. at the time? I'm just saying, I'm the outlier. You're the youngest of the group and you're, what, 55? 56? You say that with question? No. I'm surprised Tom got it wrong. He knows how old I am. You usually get it wrong, Chris. Mm. Usually try to make yourself a year older than you are, mm. which I find hilarious. But anyway, <laughs> for me, classicness, I have a 7.5. The problem I have with this is classic is I found it funny yet. And I think for the most part, you know, at the time, you know, the film was a little racy with some of the the, the jokes and such. Now it's not. But it plays well on what would be network television yet. I think some of the jokes would still hold up. So contrary to what your opinion is, the self-described comedy snob. Did I make that sound loud enough so it's audible? 
I figured you'd rip on me, so fine. Okay, well, I'll do it again. Anyway. I'm not sure that's going to sound good in 1.5 speed, but sure. Don't play it at 1.5 speed. Well, there are some people that's the only way they listen to podcasts. Yeah, well. Like myself. I like to do things where I savor. Not necessarily speed through. Which is probably what she said. Anyway, so I'm at 7.5. So that's a 7 average between the three of us. Rewatchability. Because I don't find this nearly as funny as you two. And it's been a long time since I probably put this movie on. I'm going to give it a two that I might put it on for myself. It's got to have the right situation for me to even want to, I would guess. And to leave it on probably another two. I mean, I remember most of the beats of it, but I seriously think I know that the remake didn't hit with some people. Dad and I both liked it and hoped it had continued, but it obviously didn't. But I do think that the concept still works if you just update some of the jokes or kind of push some of the situations a little bit differently. And I I have that for remaining questions is how do you modernize this? So we'll get to that here in a few minutes. But I have a four. I have a seven. I think if it's on, I'll watch it. Like I said, I like to laugh. It's funny. Would I want to watch it every week? No, not like some of the films that I could watch all the time. So I really, I think a seven fits. I have a seven also. This is a film that I think I should put on my regular rewatch every couple of years, simply because it's light. You know, I can see myself 12, 18, 24 months from now going, you know, a Friday night, we've had pizza and a couple of glasses of wine or whatever, a cocktail, and just throwing it on. And not caring if you're like chit-chatting during the film or whatever. Just enjoy having it on in the background. Watching it a little bit, laughing here and there. It's nostalgic. Because I used to watch the... I watched the comedy on television. As I did also watch the reruns of the TV show. And it's all built on each other. Ultimately, I think it's fun to do, and I can see myself doing it again or putting it on for somebody who's a guest, and you're just trying to find something that everybody feels comfortable watching without it being too heavy. All right, so that's a six average between the three of us. For audience score, we had a 70% for Google users and an 89% for Rotten Tomato users, giving us a 795 So to recap the categories, we had an 8.67 for Legacy, a 9 for Impact and Significance, an 8.5 for Novelty, a 7 for Classicness, a 6 for Rewatchability, and a 7.95 for Audience Score, giving us a final total of 47.12 and currently placing it on our list. Get this, between Rashomon and John Wick. (laughs) Uh, We certainly have our little uh, eclectic list, do we not? To say the least. Again, if you disagree with any of our scoring, you have the right to message us at our email address, 
greatest all-time movie podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on any of our socials, including now Letterboxd, which we just recently started up our own account-specific or show-specific Letterboxd account, where we keep all of the specific episodes for the show updated on there with all of our scores. And so we're going to be integrating that and building that out a little bit more as we go by. But uh, any of the other socials, including Letterbox now, at Gmote Podcast. So if you have a, a disagreement, we would love to hear from you there. Let's go to remaining questions then. Do either Oscar or Felix ever remarry? Well, in the TV show with Tony Randall and Jack Klugman, yes. The end of the TV show, when they found out they were being canceled, they ended it by Felix remarrying his ex-wife, which in the TV show they changed her name to Gloria, and they got remarried. And then when they got remarried, Oscar goes around the apartment throwing like confetti and having this big thing, so I can see that they do. And quite frankly, Oscar remarrying I think is obvious because he would ultimately temper his slovenliness and he would find somebody that was willing to take that on so yes men are not destined to be single for long uh i think my personal situation would beg to differ but okay i i don't know i i do think that the place that they're in to start the movie would have to change obviously you can't do it enough within the course of the movie because it's only like three weeks to give them a truly cathartic experience to change how intrinsically or identity tied these particular characteristics are to both of them. You can start to see small modifications by the end of the movie. Now with a TV show, you can obviously do that over multiple seasons and show some like character growth or development to the point where they could fix the things about them that made them repulsive, but it's not, I guess enough time in either the play or the movie for me to make sense with where their characters are at. Yes. There's always a possibility if they evolve over time, I wouldn't say people make dramatic changes, but they do make small evolutions. I think of the two of them. I think that Oscar would probably be the more likely to get remarried. He's got a little bit better personality, a little bit easier to get along with. So I could see that he's more charming. So how would you modernize this concept? The first thing that it seems to me, and one of the areas that this may age poorly in, if it had been a little bit more overt instead of kind of hinting at it without directly going right at it, is if Felix is gay and he divorces his husband, it would make a little bit more sense to me in a modern concept. And then you have a diversity play. You can make the characters in different backgrounds. But to me, that's the easiest way of updating this. I don't know. I don't know if you need to necessarily update it because it doesn't matter. I don't think it's based on sexuality. I think it's based on just personality more than anything. No, but if you're going to refresh what the concept is and bring it into a modern situation, I don't think you could have Felix be that strongly associated with effeminate behavior without it kind of being somewhat overt 
in what are normally conceived of as uh, homosexual tendencies. Not that I'm necessarily creating that, but I would say that's the easiest, that's the low-hanging fruit if you're going to re-energize something like this. You know, it's pretty acceptable anymore for men and women to just simply be roommates. And you could make the woman the slovenly one and the man the the cleaner upper. True. Yeah, I could I could buy that. Again, I would say that you could still make the man gay in this scenario and then have the woman be, I don't know, what's a profession that wouldn't necessarily be cleanly adjacent. A garbage collector? <laughs> truck driver? Yeah, I suppose truck driver, but then that only plays in a certain community concept as opposed to like being it in, in New York. You would probably have to put it in, you know, middle America. Taxi driver? Are there such things anymore? Well. Uh, Uber? I suppose. But yep. All right. I think you're missing the ultimate concept, which is to play off the psychological aspect. Felix being obsessive compulsive is a diagnosis of OCD. Well, I suppose that's one way of updating it. You have a neurotic OCD obsessed person and he moves in with his friend who's a psychiatrist, but has no interest in like being off the clock caring as he is with his patients. Yes. He's just kind of an oaf. In some regard, we're talking about the, uh, is it Apple TV with uh, Jason Siegel and uh, Harrison Ford? Harrison Ford. Yes, it's on Apple TV Plus, and you're looking for the show Shrinking. Oh, yeah, Shrinking. Yes. In, in part, I think Shrinking fits within the diagram or the parameters of what this play is. I don't think it has the same nail on the head no. no characters, but okay, sure. It has some of the similar ones to what we kind of sketched out right there. But then again, I mean, how novel can you create anything that doesn't have at least something that's comparable to it? There's been so much content created by this point. Yeah. Everything ultimately is based on Shakespeare. Or the Greeks. How you want to live your life and talking about Greek is your problem. It's all Greek to me. Anyway, one odd thing that stuck out to me to finish the film is it changed the framing at the end. There's a kind of a, I wouldn't say it's a widescreen because it's kind of like a black framed shot. Why would you think that was? Because they're now both, instead of being cloistered within their own personalities, are more open to being different than they were. Is that supposed to be representative of them changing their framings? Yes. Felix is more assertive. Oscar is more cleanly. I thought maybe it was because they showed the shot of the hallway as he's leaving, and I'm thinking it's more of a separation. There's a, a gap. It's Something has totally changed. Obviously, for the TV show, it comes back. Well, I didn't really notice until Oscar goes to sit down at the poker table, and that's when he says, you know, make sure your cigarette butts go in the ashtrays. That's when I, it really came to the fore for me, but okay. I just thought it was something at least novel, because we've talked about a few different final shots being a little bit slightly different 
for these films, including The Birds, one of mom's favorite films. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> Another yes. episode we talked about you on. Uh, I'm glad I'm so popular. Good. Keep it that way. <laughs> All right. Final thoughts for the week. Well, I just like watching these two. Um, you know, I would definitely go back and watch another movie. Actually, when he mentioned Grumpy Old Men, I'm like, oh, that would be fun to watch. I haven't seen it in a long time. Uh-huh. Yeah. You take one eye to the optometrist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, well, thanks for inviting me, guys. For me, having... Uh grown up and watched Cheers and then watching a lot of Frasier and then ultimately during the pandemic starting Frasier from the beginning and taking it through the actual end. I didn't get to watch as much of it as I wanted to simply because I was in school for part of it and then ultimately I had small family and blah blah blah. Uh, You were out of school by the time Frasier even came on in like 1992-1993. Okay, well, whatever. But I had small family at that point in time. Ultimately, I would say that uh, you and I happened to watch the first episode of the re... Not not really reboot, but what's the term? Um, It's kind of a reframing of it. It's the same characters, but continuing on. I actually really enjoyed the first episode. I'm looking forward to watching multiple more episodes. If you uh, grew up in that kind of that kind of situation with, you know, that sitcom related thing, Kelsey Grammer playing uh, Fraser Crane is enjoyable, and I enjoyed watching the new one, and I'm looking forward to the rest of it. See, I thought that it found it very difficult to find their footing in the first one. There is some emotional heft by the end of the episode, and even I was getting a little like choked up on it but i wasn't sure that the show completely earned or deserved it because you had to be so ingrained with the original show i'm sure they're playing off of the fact that the only people likely watching the soft reboot or whatever would be people who watched the original show but even so i'd be curious if if it gets a little bit better for me i i still think that the characters are a little weak yet as to what their personalities are. And you also introduced like five or six primary characters in the first episode that you got only small flavors for. So I I do think it needs a couple of episodes yet to flesh out exactly what they are. It wasn't the best written pilot, if you ask me. Yeah, I, I understand. But you're looking at it as somebody who probably was not a big fan of the original show or watched... Frasier matriculate through the episodes of Cheers. So it made more sense. You are correct. I did not see the Frasier crane from Cheers. However, you are wrong. I watched every episode of Frasier and I enjoyed the original show. It's one of the few like sitcoms, older sitcoms that I actually liked. I did like the first couple of seasons of Cheers that I had seen. I just have never gone back and like tried to rewatch the full thing. Still one of my favorite sitcoms. You and millions of other people. Yeah. 
So that's going to do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. I'm telling you, animal, these Nazis ain't kosher. I said you can say it again. That doesn't mean you have to repeat it. Next week, for our 190th episode, we discuss another World War II prison camp movie with Stalag 17 from 1953, celebrating its 70th anniversary this year. Written and directed by Billy Wilder, written with Edwin Blum, music by Franz Waxman, starring William Holden, Don Taylor, Otto Preminger, and Peter Graves. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at thenewronniedunkinstudios.com or at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast or find us on Instagram, X, Letterboxd, and TikTok at the handle at Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM. 